I was adamant from the beginning that if we were going to be talking about important things at the National Arts Centre, then one of the important things that we should talk about was art. And so, with thanks to the Prime Minister who was here a month ago, with thanks to all the politicians who were here before him, I am really pleased to have one of Canada's most prominent artists joining us tonight. Yeah. It's easy <laughs> when, it's, when it's Edward Bertinsky because uh, it's not such a long journey from what he does to what the politicians discuss on Parliament Hill every day. And in fact, the moment is a little bit propitious, I think uh, you will agree, to discuss the impact that people are having on our planet. Uh, without further ado, I hope you'll join me in welcoming tonight's guest, Edward Bertinsky. Thanks for coming out. Um, I figured we would begin by uh, defining terms. You are here to talk in large measure about your latest project, which is called Anthropocene. It is uh, two simultaneous uh, exhibitions, one at the National Gallery just down the street and one at the Art Gallery of Ontario. It's a movie, it is two books, it is podcasts, it's a floor wax, it's a non-dairy whip topping. Uh, <laughs> But it begins with that word. What is Anthropocene? Uh, it's a word that uh, was minted at around 2000 by Paul Crutzen. And basically, uh, and he, he had uh, won a Nobel Prize for his work. And he determined that the planet is now shifting into a new epoch. And that we as humans are shifting um, the human systems more than all natural systems combined in terms of Earth systems. So we as humans are an agency of change into the next epoch. And that's never happened on the planet where one species is, is the agency of change. So you know, anthro, man, or human, scene, change. So we're changing it. And the last time we've had an epoch change was 12,000 years ago from the last ice age. And, and the last time we've had an extinction event to the, to the scale of this one, uh, was 65 million years ago, where the dinosaurs went extinct from a meteor impact. So, um, you know, that, that bears, you know, paying attention, I believe, because, again, it's in front of us, we can see what's happening, and the driver it clearly seems to be us. Okay. So, it's essentially about the moment when human history has become the history of the world when we matter more than everything else that's happening in the world. And um, one of the things that's intriguing when I watch the film is that uh, it, it doesn't depict this as unrelievedly a horrible thing. It's, a, it's a, uh, an event or a moment that brings with it choices and that we just have to think about the choices that we can make. Absolutely, I mean, it doesn't mean that it has to be a bad Anthropocene or we won't survive it. Uh, but it does mean that we have to become aware of it, uh, and the raising of a consciousness is what we as artists are trying to do through the film and the, and the exhibitions and the photographs. And that raising of consciousness hopefully contributes to the ongoing dialogue. Obviously, uh, there are many who are, are telling this story, and we believe as artists we can bring that story forward in a way that allows us to own the issues ourselves. We're not like preaching, uh, we're not also prescriptive, saying if we just do this, it's all gonna be okay, but we're kind of revealing what we're doing and, and not accusing those who are doing it because we believe we're all implicated in this. Okay. Before we go much further, I thought we would simply show you a little bit 
of Edward's work, the work that he did with his collaborators, Nicholas Pontier, Jennifer Beishwal. And we've got a trailer for the movie version of Anthropocene. So I direct your attention to these two screens, and we'll take a look at that clip now. The Anthropocene is the time in the geological record when humans have moved the planet outside its natural limits. Humans go from being participants in the whole Earth to being a dominant feature. Dominating the oceans, the landscape, agriculture, animals. It could be a full-scale catastrophic change. a way to get back. We live now in a different world. It is such a fundamental change in the way the Earth is behaving that we need to communicate that as powerfully as possible to everybody. goosebumps looking at that. Um, I saw the press screening for the movie at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. And afterwards, my friends asked, well, what's it like? And I said, it's essentially a cinematic tour of every part of the world that looks like an Edward Bertinsky photo. <laughs> uh, uh, four years in the making. And I get the impression you were working kind of full tilt for most of those four years on this, uh, because you, you, you racked up a lot of air miles. Yeah, and the first year is really kind of forming the idea and where we're going to go. Uh, at the same time as we're doing that, um, in film, uh, there are expensive projects, especially with all the travel and all the equipment we're moving as well. That, that first year is also fundraising. Well, the fundraising never really stops when you're making a film. But, um, but it was you know, that process of constantly saying, where do we go? And what are we trying to say about this place? And in my office in my home, we had this war room with a magnetic wall, and we had all the categories of the Anthropocene Working Group, uh, anthroturbation and technofossils and terraforming and all the you know, extinction events and all these. And underneath each one of those categories, we were you know, using my older works or sometimes things we found on, on, online, uh, things from magazines. We had researchers helping us all the time as well. And then we would kind of plot you know, where we're going, uh, and what we're trying to say about where we're going. Okay. Um, you, you say all of your equipment. What, what is some of the equipment that you, that you bring with you to capture these images? 
Uh, well, even from the very beginning of the project, I started the project with my own uh, Hasselblad camera, and I moved away from film uh, probably in, I think, 2007 is when I started doing a lot of aerial work and found that the digital back, the Hasselblad, which is a medium format digital back, was uh, a far better tool to, to do the work from, from an aircraft, whether it's a fixed wing or a helicopter. And once I discovered that, I kind of shifted away from large formats. All my work before that was with a hood and an upside down image, like an Ansel Adams type of approach. And it's very slow and methodic and you need a tripod on the ground. And now I'm in the air and I'm trying to get the same feeling as if I you know, made that shot in the same way, contemplating it on a tripod, but now I'm moving around on a helicopter and having to do many, many shots. And so the digital format actually ended up being much better than the film format for, for approaching that subject from that, from that way of working. And so then I started actually with a 40 megapixel Hasselblad, and then as this technology kept moving, you know, even at the beginning of this project, it was a 60 megapixel, and I thought, this is great. And now I'm working with a 100 megapixel um, Hasselblad. So it is almost, with this medium format camera, I'm almost working at the quality of what was my 8x10. I'd say it's like a, more like a 5x7. So it's better than my 4x5 format, but it's not quite my 8x10, but it's pretty good. And all the images at the National Gallery and the AGO are all shot you know, with that um, either 60 or 100 megapixel uh, camera. And then we also would travel with drone, and that, and that drone was big enough to carry my Hasselblad. So all in, it's about a 40-pound package. Um, then, of course, film equipment, and we had VR equipment and uh, special heads for murals. So those murals that you'd also see at the show were uh, a special head that stitches a digital picture together using uh, uh, about 120 or 200 images. And then you get this incredible resolution that it's literally billboard size, but you can walk up to it and see every leaf on the plant. And you can see you know, uh, excruciating detail with, these, with this new technology, uh, which was impossible 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So, all, so I've been in this kind of photographic renaissance where all this new equipment, uh, lens-based equipment is coming on board. There's virtual reality, augmented reality, and I'm working with those tools as well. And so it's, it's really, when we go there, there's about six choices I have of how to approach that subject. Do we do it filmically? Do I do augmented reality? Do we want to do a, a, a VR 360 video of this? Do we want stills? Do I want film? Uh, do I want to put the film camera on a drone? Do we do uh, you know, a film camera on a helicopter? So all these are kind of a, a menu board uh, that we can now work with. And as we go into different places with different challenges, you know, we then uh, adapt the tools to the ideas that we're trying to, to express. So just for comparison's sake, to be briefly a little less technical, I've got a Google Pixel telephone. Uh, telephone. It's a dynamite phone camera. And it's got a resolution of about 11 uh, megapixels. And uh, so your, your best digital camera has about 10 times that resolution, 10 times that kind of fine detail. And to allow, and, and what it allows you to do is to be way more dynamic and to, and to gather way more information on a shoot than when you were just going one frame at a time. Yeah, and if you look at the, the Legos picture, which is on display, um, so what I was able to do is get the drone, put a wide-angle uh, lens on my Hasselblad 100 megapixel, go out there, find the point of view that I said, okay, it looks really good there. I like that point of view with a wide-angle lens. Bring the drone back, take the wide-angle lens off, 
put a telephoto lens on, rebalance the whole drone, send it back up there. And with drones today, and this is like, again, that large drone, we can geolock it. So we could say, okay, lock it here. And now it's within six inches of that position. Even with wind hitting it, it'll stay within a six inch window. And then I can use the, and then I, with a telephoto lens, I'm starting to shoot that same you know, frame that was wide angle with a telephoto. Then I'm able to get that 100 megapixel with 20 you know, uh, 100 megapixel shots stitched together, and thus you can get like a shot like that Lego, Lego's picture. So that, again, is just in the last five years that I've been able to think that way. Um, maybe my last geeky question, although I make no promises. There's a, there, there's a scene at the Carrera Marble uh, quarry in Italy where they, 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 they dig the finest marble in the world, and, you, and it starts where um, the camera's fairly tightly focused on a, on a heavy tractor or a heavy loading equipment, and then it pulls back and back and back and back until you see the whole side of the mountain. Uh, was that done with drones? Or? Correct. Yeah. So that was like uh, probably we tried, well, I was working with Mike on that one, Mike Reed, and, you know, and the camera goes up to the machine and then pulls away. And first we had to get the right light, and it was tricky. It was really sunny at that time, so we had to wait for that kind of full overcast. Um, and then there was probably like 10 attempts, and that's a shot with a red camera, 5K red, and then, you know, again, trying to do it and to do the even pull away. So again, that's possible because you can't get that intimate with a helicopter. You know, it's just too big and it's just, you know, dust would be flying, but that small drone allows you that kind of very, you know, uh, creative and, and intimate kind of ways in which you can begin a shot and then pull away into the big wide shot. So it's really exciting to work with these new tools. So it's like the kind of, it's like the crane shot that Steven Spielberg loves so much in his movies, except the crane is kilometers long, potentially. Yeah, okay. yeah, pretty much. Now let's go back to Lagos, Nigeria. What were you taking pictures of? Well, Lagos attracted me because, again, if, if you look at the whole arc of my work, and, and, and one of the things that underlines all the the choices that I've made over time is, uh, let's say I say I want to I want to photograph um, copper mines. So, well, there's thousands of copper mines around the world. Which copper mine? So, to keep you know, the, a narrow focus, I said, well, what's the largest copper mine in scale and in product, and and what's been going, you know, a mine that's been working for a long time because then it would have a greater void, a greater open pit. So I'd look at all those things as my criteria because I wanted to get into places where you're seeing something that is extraordinary. Um, so that's always been kind of one of my research uh, go-tos. Lagos uh, was interesting because it's in Africa and almost in the world, it's one of the fastest growing cities. They're adding about 6,000 people on a daily basis coming to the city and literally just you know, locking onto the edges of the city and building these ad hoc you know, informal communities with roadways and everything as, as people are coming. And currently, they don't even know how many, but it's somewhere between 20 and 25 million people. Some, th some think that's 23 million um, is the closest they can come to. But at current growth rates, by 2050, they're expecting 50 million people. And if and unabated, and if everything business as usual, by 2100, they would be 85 million people. It would be the biggest city in the world, given what's happening and and the, and the way and all the population growth is the next two generations in Africa. All other big countries like China, India, the, the West is actually in, in, in a downward uh, uh, slump and has been for a long time. But you know, China's plateaued. 
you know, India's plateaued, Indonesia's plateaued, but in the next two generations, we're expecting two to three more billion people coming uh, and, and being born in Africa. So it is that migration to Lagos that, that to me was interesting in the fact that here's a city without a, like a city planning department. It just happens, you know, it's a, and it's fascinating to go there and to, to look at, 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 you know, this kind of improbable, massive city. And, and it is, like, they, they have, you know, gridlocks there that are legion where it's taken them, like, 18 hours to, 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 to get traffic moving again. Um, so, so it is, uh, uh, was a very fascinating place to, to look at and to photograph. Okay. Also, I believe in Nairobi, Kenya, you visited a landfill. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the principle was, what's the biggest damn landfill I can find? And it's outside Nairobi. Um, uh, piles of uh, garbage, but largely plastic bags, 15 meters deep. And in among all of that um, landfill are thousands of people who are picking through it uh, for buried treasure, essentially. And no one's hired them. They're essentially, uh, I think they're called informal workers. What's going on in that landfill? Precisely. Well, you're, you're quite right that what they're doing is that stuff would be dumped and, you know, whether it's, you know, bottles or anything, and they'd have to sort the plastic and they get paid by the kilo. And it's really just cents on the kilo. Um, and, and all day long, they're just, you know, combining, you know, uh, uh, the right kinds of plastic that, that can then be recycled uh, into the system. And, um, and because uh, plastic bags had no value, they just kept accumulating. So it's like, it's, it's not just 15 meters high, it's correct, but it's 100 acres of 15 meters high. And there are people who, they, they, there's a documentary said Children of Dandora. There are children, there are families that live on the plastic pile and kids who have been born on the plastic bag pile and have known, known nothing but that as their life. That is their playground, which is kind of hard to conceive but it's true, we were there and we saw where they were living and you know, they had a little kitchen area and, and, this, and they had tents and little you know, shacks that they live on top of plastic bags. So um, it, it was quite remarkable. And then also what, what was interesting is that um, about a year ago, much to the surprise of everybody, um, all of a sudden the Kenyan government said, plastic bags are illegal, period. And within months, all the companies that sold plastic bags were shut down. They, you know, all their inventory had to be you know, taken out. And, uh, and, and now they're plastic bag free. So it, it's really interesting that uh, they've gone down that non-plastic, you know, that, that one-time use problem of plastic is that it just accumulates and there's, you know, the single-use stuff just ends up in landfill. There's nothing else you can do with it. So walking down the street, coming out of a, a grocery store in Nairobi, there's no longer any plastic bags. But all of the billions of plastic bags that were used until that decision, they're still there in that landfill. Yeah. And that's a kind of a metaphor for a lot of the conclusions that one reaches from watching this film or going to these exhibits. Well, the, just, just to add to that, one of the things that the Anthropocene Working Group look at, and it's a, it's a term they call technofossils, so all of the, our dumps, all of our kind of landfills, which will have all kinds of things in them, aluminum and uh, like aluminum tin foil or plastic bags or you know, old radios or any of this stuff, any alloy, anything that nature can't create itself, things that we kind of synthesize and persist within 
um, the, the, the strata that would go deep into the future is they refer to as a technofossil. So, so all these plastic bags, if a geologist two million years from now was chipping along and said, oh, look, I just found all this plastic, so I'm, I now know I'm in the Anthropocene. This is, this is evidence of our, our moment, our time on the planet, when we um, expressed you know, this, this material, plastic, into the landscape, and it's a persistent, uh, and, and, and the number one technofossil that we produce is uh, cement. Um, that uh, we, you know, the amount of cement that we've, uh, you know, laid down on the, onto the planet is by, by and large the largest singular technofossil. There's a, there's a photo that is to some extent less uh, dramatic than some of the others until you realize what it is. It's a sky shot of uh, thousands of huge concrete, uh, I don't know what, gadgets that, that, that together form a seawall around part of China. And uh, the, what, I mean, that's interesting in itself. You realize the scale of it. This is many kilometers across of nothing but these huge concrete things each the side of a car. And then um, it says in the book that 60% of the coastline of China is now protected with these concrete seawalls. China's got a large coastline. Um, is that a, what does that represent, that scale of human intervention? Well, it represents one thing that they're aware that the the oceans are rising and they're trying to protect the coastline. That's the first thing that they're trying to do, and that's why they're spending all that money. Uh, they're called tetrapods, also delosses, uh, these interlocking, and somebody discovered by making this geometric form and lock it together that it will hold against a pounding sea and, and uh, not fall apart. So I see on, on Twitter all the time people saying, ha, 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 the oceans aren't rising. This is Barack Obama lunacy. Um, somebody forgot to tell China that the oceans aren't rising. <laughs> and they're spending a lot of money uh, in order to prepare for that. So uh, adaptation is actually one of the things that I believe that China's really embracing in a big way, and they're building nuclear power stations. Their, their, their wind farms are, are huge. You know, we often go to Google Earth to see what they're doing, and up in the Gobi Desert in that region, the wind farms there are beyond the imagination in scale. Huge solar plants. So they are embracing nuclear, solar, and wind on a level that is, is, is incredible, and uh, also, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're now tooling up to create electric cars on a scale that, that again, is, is uh, um, you know, huge. And, and they're, they now literally own the battery business. So all batteries are now made in, in China as well. So they, they are tooling up for the world that's coming. You also went to Germany to a coal mine near the Rhine River that is slowly eating the surrounding towns. Uh, tell, me, tell us about that. Well, this was quite remarkable because I wasn't even aware of the scale of coal mining. So um, if you recall, you know, uh, you know, after the last nuclear action, um, Fukushima, Fukushima, that um, Markle went and said, we're shutting down our eight last nuclear power plants, which I'm not sure if it was the right decision or not, but she did it. But that meant a lot more pressure onto coal. And this was one of the largest coal operations uh, in all of Germany. And, and quite frankly, I've never seen uh, a, an open pit on that scale ever. Um, you know, from the top edges, it was six kilometers across. And it's a big V. 
And the, this big bucket, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a rotary bucket and it, and it has 18, uh, and it's moving soil at a level that uh, is unimaginable. And they have to, again, move massive amounts of soil. It's like there's about um, 150 meters of soil before they get to the coal seam, and they have to move it. And it's like a six you know, kilometer V with about uh, you know, several hundred meters at the bottom, which is the open coal seam. And as they're harvesting the coal, the whole thing is moving along this way. So if towns are in its way, they just flatten the town because uh, it's, it's in the way of, of this big V mine moving across because the coal itself is maybe you know, 15, 20 meters of coal. And once they harvest that, they have to keep going along. Um, and I think in terms of the film, it's one of those zeniths in the film where all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're looking at this you know, monster machine tearing down a church. And I think it's unsettling to, to, to see that this is uh, something that's happening as a result of, of harvesting coal, mining for coal. I always remind myself that you, your sort of primeval lens or conceptual lens for looking at this stuff is that of an artist. And a lot of this stuff, even, the, even the, these coal digging machines, is eerily beautiful. There was a brief shot in the trailer that we saw of one of these machines, and they're vast. They're way larger than any dinosaur that ever existed. These huge metal things peeking up through the clouds. And I wonder if, how you respond when you think, man, that's the shot that we're gonna use. That is uh, a glorious picture of this enormous town-eating Machine. Town eating machine. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is the biggest uh, land moving machine that humans have ever constructed. It's 100 meters high by 300 meters long. Uh, and actually, when it starts to move, you know, you're standing beside it, the earth literally shakes. So this is, uh, and it's built uh, by Krupp in, in, uh, in Germany. Uh, this particular uh, mine had 18 of these machines. Um, and I mean, and that was one of the reasons we went there, because it was like, wow, this is the largest machine, you know, land machine ever built. And then also, this is one of the largest coal mines. And it, it took us over a year and a half to get permission, because you might imagine that a, a coal mining company doesn't really want, you know, photographers or filmmakers around. Uh, and we had to convince them otherwise that, that, you know, that, that, you know, we had a story to tell about scale and this machine. And, uh, and, and we wanted to bring it forward. And, and quite frankly, Germany you know, uh, has probably, as, as one of the Western countries, done the most to green in terms of solar and wind, um, you know, their, their power base. But unfortunately, this lignite, you know, dirty brown coal uh, is there, and, and, and it is one of the, the nastier coals you can burn. Um, and I guess until you know time comes the next you know I think they're they're, they're even at the at the coal mine they're saying we see ourselves kind of over in a decade or so that that the pressure and the liabilities for carbon emissions are going to get so high that that alternatives are 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 on the horizon. I was going to ask about that. A lot of the events that you photograph are time sensitive. There's there's something that happens on a specific date, and they happen in some of the few remaining really remote locations on Earth, how much of your time is spent making sure that you'll be able to get your shot once you're there? And how do you crunch some of those jurisdictional questions of public officials who really don't want gorgeous photos of what they're doing? 
Well, it's, it's, it, that, and that's a great question. It, you never can be sure, but most of the work, the permissions have to really be signed off before we move a crew over there. Any one of these shoots, you know, we're, you know, we're into tens and tens of thousands of dollars because we're bringing film equipment in and special uh, technicians who can run this equipment. And, and uh, we have fixtures on the ground there, vehicles, flights, all of, you know, all of those things involved in a shoot. So we can't, you know, go there without, you know, having that permission pretty much in place. And that being said, you know, things happen. Like when we went to... Uh, Russia to Norilsk, they couldn't quite, we were on a cultural visa and they couldn't quite believe how we, on a cultural visa, we would come with, you know, 20 cases of equipment, with recording equipment, drones, film equipment. And they thought, well, you, you know, you, you came in on the wrong visa. You should have come in on a journalist visa. And they said, no, we're, it's a cultural visa because we are artists and we're not, I'm not, you know, writing for McLean's or CBC or doing film, you know, we're making a documentary and I'm making a book and we're having an exhibition. So we are indeed artists and, and what we're doing is a cultural thing. It's not a journalistic thing. They, they had a hard time with that and they kept detaining us. So we were detained like four times, fingerprinted, held back. And that would be really, really tough because we'd come back and they would get us in the lobby of our hotel and they'd come with us. And then we're at the immigration office or at the police station and then it's like four or five hours. And that was what we'd normally recharge our batteries for the get ready for the next shoot, download all our cards, you know, eat, get some rest, get ready for the 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. next morning, wake up. And that would just throw us right off. And then, then we'd be working till two or three in the morning and then getting two hours of sleep and going. So it was, uh, it was tough, but we, we persevered. We kept our cool and, and managed to get what we needed. Okay. Um, I was about to ask, why did you want to be in Norilsk? What is Norilsk? So um, the, only, the only larger deposit of nickel uh, and precious metals uh, that's larger than Sudbury is Norilsk. And, I've, and it's been on my radar for over 20 years as you know, one of the largest deposits of, of nickel and, and colored metals in the world, palladium, uh, nickel, and copper. And so... And, it, and it's a closed city. I mean, this, you know, back in the day when there was a gulag and Stalin sent you off, that's where you went. You went to Norilsk or Murmansk. And it's northern Siberia. It's 350 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. And most would go to their death because it was a horrific place to work, you know, uh, dark for nine months or eight to nine months out of the year. Uh, and, um, you know, super freezing cold. We were there on a, actually... One of the nicest days, uh, I think, that happens in Norilsk. Uh, sunny and shiny, and uh, it wasn't really what we were looking for. I was actually looking for a moodier uh, landscape, but you take what you get. Uh, and, uh, but it was you know, quite something to be there, and there's like 200,000 people that live there year-round. It's a closed city. Even to citizens of Russia, you have to apply or you have to have somebody sponsor you there to go to Norilsk. And the reason why they were suspicious of us when we landed is that if you Google top 10 most polluted cities in the world, Norilsk is usually number one or two. And so the only reason anybody comes with camera gear is to tell that story. So they're pretty much, you know, you've got this big kind of uh, X on your forehead saying you're here for one reason only because you're not here to tell a happy story about how great Norilsk is. So, so we had to work against that kind of perception. And this town of 100-odd thousand people produces 1% of all of the sulfur dioxide, I believe, in the, 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 that's produced in the world. Uh, I mean, it's really not clean. Um, 
And the thing that I found fascinating is there are still people living their lives, right? Like there are teenagers sort of flirting and goofing around uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the riverfront, and, except the river is this sort of multicolored sludge yeah. that's kind of bumping along. Don't jump in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's I don't, poignant to watch that. Well, life does go on. I mean, I can't imagine what winter's like because it's so cold and, and dark for that long. That, uh, uh, but vodka's cheap. You go in, you go in the stores and, and you know, like for about you know, in terms of Canadian dollars, for four dollars you get a twenty-sixer, and and uh, and it's just like half the grocery store is you know different varieties of vodka. So I think a lot of that gets gets consumed in the winter. And you and you were there during a kind of an employees festival, a workers festival. Yeah, the, the metallurgy festival. The metallurgy festival. <laughs> <laughs> Don't miss it. Um, and it, it, it's, it, you know, even 20 years after, 25 years after the, the, the collapse of the USSR, um, the ceremonial vocabulary of the metallurgy festival still seems pretty heavily drawn from Stalinism. Uh, you know, we are happy because we work for the best mine and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. it's very propaganda-ish. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess the big question is, what are you trying to say with this tour of the world's most spectacular human interventions? Well, on this particular, and I think my work from like early 80s, I really, like Inca was the first mine I photographed that, of scale. I did some other smaller things, but that was the first big mine I did. And it really set me on a trajectory uh, of looking at human systems or, or large-scale human systems uh, on the landscape. So I stopped being a landscape photographer because I, I, I loved going out there with my large format camera, kind of Edward Western, Weston, Ansel Adam-ish, you know, and, and taking, just really thinking about the image and slowing myself down and kind of attenuating into that space and finding where the image is. And I love that kind of, um, kind of meditative way of working and that the large format slows you down. Uh, it's kind of like slow photography. Um, and, but then I realized that just looking at the landscape, as much as I loved it, I felt that somehow it was nostalgic. It was yearning for a time that's passed. And when I started looking at mines and photographing them, I, I started to feel that, well, this is more in keeping with my times. If I'm going to be an, an artist working in a, with a contemporary subject matter, then I need to stop just looking at the, I know it's there, that pristine landscape is there, and thank goodness it's still there. But I think it's gonna be a much more powerful way to turn my lens to human systems, the largest things I can find that we've done uh, to the planet to provide for our daily lives. So the, the idea is that this is not a disaster aesthetic. This isn't like Katrina and the flattened you know, suburbs uh, in, in New Orleans. You know, and photographing that, because that one might say that's a human-induced storm, but you can't, you can't make the direct correlation. But I was looking more for business as usual. This, this is the, these are the landscapes that are a direct correlation to our cities. We can't be here sitting on these chairs or that glass comes from silica out there from a silica mine somewhere. Wooden floors come from forests. And, but we just don't see that anymore. We're, we're, we're totally kind of detached. And so through the camera and through photography and lens-based mediums, film, and now VR and AR, and of course the stills, you know, I can connect, reconnect us with those landscapes 
And to be able to tell that story that, you know, all those ages, the Stone Age and the Iron Age and the Copper Age and the Bronze Age, they're all alive and well on a scale that is mind-boggling. And we're always casting forward. We're looking at the biological age or the information age, the computer, or whatever, whichever way you want to slice the future. We're going the AI age we're entering in. But, but those ones are the ones that can come back and get us. And those are the ones that are dangerous because they're undermining the fabric of all the life systems that are there that, that we can sit here and take for granted. But we don't know what happens when we lose you know, the big you know, animals. We don't know what happens when the sharks are gone. We don't fully understand what happens when all the coral disappears. So, so we're playing with these things, not fully understanding the impacts, but, but it is uh, an ever-growing appetite out there. So through the lens I, I, I'm, and through the medium of photography, I'm trying to reconnect us, not in an accusatory way, but in a revelatory way. It, is, it brings you on to inherently um, political ground, though. Uh, is that something that you, are, that you embrace? Is that something that you're wary of? Well, I've always been careful not to position myself as an, an environmentalist in that, in the classic sense of the word. I haven't taken environmental programs. I, you know, um, but I do uh, um, position myself as an advocate for sustainability and the concern for a concerned citizen, a concerned artist for the planet, a concerned photographer. So, so I do see that as one of the things that, that I address in my work. And I do speak about the fact that, again, we're, you know, the, the scale, like the amount of wasteland, because what I'm looking for the largest, you know, mines or the largest, you know, deforestation areas or the largest um, factories in the world, um, you see, you, you, all of a sudden, you, you begin to see that scale firsthand. And whatever I'm showing you is just you know, the baby toe on, on, on the foot of the elephant. I mean, there's just so much more. I can only bring you certain things in one frame that, that one might even gasp and go, holy cow, look at that. But that's a section of something that's way larger and way greater than that. So, uh, you know, I, I, and I often said the, the things that I photograph, if you look at all the things I see in, in life, of, of every day and every moment, what I make a photograph is, is, is a tiny fraction of, of, of 1% of what I see is actually what ends up being my photographs. I, I think my way into pictures and spend uh, sometimes years thinking my way into a picture and then I make it. So it's, it's very, you know, what I'm doing now is a much more planned approach to my work versus uh, in the early days, in the early 80s, I got in my car and drove around and had a mineral map saying, oh, there's, there, there's you know, copper in those hills and I'll just drive around. Is there a copper mine around here? Uh, and try and find one that way. But now, you know, I, I'm much more um, strategic and targeted at what I do. And it's a much more collaborative uh, work than it used to be. You've got your two longtime collaborators, Duponcia and Beishwal, and staff of, I think it probably shrinks and grows, but, but dozens of people. Is it hard to be an artist when, you're, when there are so many uh, planning meetings involved? I think 30 years ago, it would have been hard. I think because uh, these things kind of incrementally grow. And one thing I've learned to do is to kind of shut out the world and just turn everything off and just put the blinders on. And where do I need to go? What do I need to do? And then, you know, get everybody on side with where I need to go and what I need to do. And I've worked with the same crew for many, many years, and they almost can instinctually know where I'm going. 
and be there with all the things that I need. So um, I don't think it would have been that, like, I think it was really important that I had those years where it was just me, my car, and my camera, and my thoughts, and, and where to go, and what to do. And, and in 1983, which was a big transitional year for me, um, I had gotten a uh, Canada Council B grant, which at the time was like $20,000. So if you go back to 83, I mean, it was, you know, 40 cents a gallon of gas and, and uh, you know, I think 12 or $15 for a motel room. So, it was, you know, that, that was a, a lot of money in those days. And it gave me a chance to spend four months on the road looking at mines. And I did the rail, the rail cut series at that time as well. And just really thinking about how do I take this idea and turn it into a life's work? And it was in that 83, on that 83 trip that I thought, this is a big enough idea that I can spend the rest of my life. Because I looked at the population charts and what was happening and what they were expecting was going to happen to human population. And I recognized we were in this acceleration of, of population and, and, and us being the you know, dominant predator species on the planet. And all of a sudden, we're, you know, our populations are moving to you know, billions and billions. And so actually, when I was born in 1955, it was like 2.5 billion people, and we're almost eight now. So it's almost a billion a decade. And, you know, and, and so I recognized that as I would be doing this work, the, 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 these mines would be getting bigger, and the factories would be getting bigger, and, you know, and all of this stuff would be getting scarcer, because as we're consuming it and as we're depleting it, it's getting you know, harder to find in more remote places. So I kind of already kind of envisioned that following this path would, and, and sticking to the path would create a compendium of images that, in aggregate, would be far more than any one of them. So now I have almost 40 years of, of, of just thinking about our human footprint and the places where I can photograph that. And, uh, and so I think you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's proven to be, I think, an interesting idea to pursue. And now, I think, as we're recognizing that we're having a s significant impact on the planet, I think people are also recognizing that work has been kind of teasing at that idea for 40 years. How does your work fit in with other art? When you go to the National Gallery and see, uh, you know, your stuff next to the Sobe art uh, competition or, or, or next to the group, the group of seven, does it, does it feel like it's at home in places like that? Well, I've always made the art, I, I've made the work to exist on walls. And so, you know, even in books or online or everything, they're, they're kind of like a surrogate experience to the, to the image on the wall. Um, and I kind of fell in love, you know, going through university, I fell in love with some of the modernist ideas that I didn't want to give up, which was the, you know, the fine print and the, the photograph had, you know, this capacity to, to resolve detail. It was this, the ultimate realist tool. And I didn't want to walk away from that strength of photography. That I believe it still was one of the pillars of the medium that, you know, the realist painters, you know, um, when camera, when photography came out, all of a sudden realized that, hey, this thing does a way better job of capturing reality than us sitting there, you know, and, and painting every pearl and, and, and making paint look like felt. You know, this thing did it just in a, in a fraction of a second. So they all went off and did, you know, and I think the Impressionist period occurred because they wanted to break away from realism. They had to find somewhere else to go. But photography did take over that realist role. 
And so I wanted to make work that, that um, again, f functioned as art. And, and because it is, uh, you know, it, it isn't defining something. It, the, the, meaning, the, the meaning for it is a floating point. So you can, you know, one day you can read it for the color and the texture and the structure of the composition. Another day you can read it for what we're doing to the planet and, and this is where our materials come from or this is, a, this is where our tires go to and, and, and look at the structures that we built around that. So, you know, there, there are ways you can interpret it and, and also like a quarry, if, if you're a quarryman, you'll read that quarry landscape very differently than if you're uh, an art historian or if you're, you know, just somebody who enjoys art and comes in and looks at, at it as well. Or if you're an environmentalist, you'll see it differently as well. So I, I do accept that these things are like a Rochart test. It's like an inkblot. You, and depending on where your position is, if you're an environmentalist, you're going to talk about the environment. But if you're, you know, if you've studied abstract expressionism and contemporary art, you can talk about that as well when you look at the work. So I'm trying to layer it with, you know, ideas from painting, ideas from photography of the past, and, and use those kinds of ideas and layer them uh, into, into the work as well. So that, um, so that you, and, uh, and the idea is that when you come up to a photograph at one of these images, that... You just can't walk by it very easily. You stop because it stops you. It makes you say, what is this place? And how come I've never seen anything like this before? And to get a photograph in, in, in today's world where we see tens of thousands of them a day, to get a photograph to slow you down and stop and look at it is, is not a, a small feat. I mean, it, because, but that sense of wonder, if you can invoke that, and get people to think about it, and there is a narrative thread through all of it. It is, it is how are we reshaping the planet what is our you know what are we doing to that planet to the planet to get the things that we need and that is kind of every photograph for 40 years had on some level touched on that idea so so there's always this thread that goes through all of it this might be a good time to bring in our second clip of the evening this is the elephant tusks burning because um, because it is a um, really an inspirational part of the story. At the beginning of the movie, we see these piles of elephant tusks in Kenya. And then at the end of the movie, we see them burning. What's going on? Can you set up this clip? What's going on here? So, you know, it was really hard to somehow speak about the extinction events that are happening. You know, a lot of them are imperceptible. You know, you, you can't, you know, if there's a, let's say, a, a, some dead animal or a dead seal or, there, or some endangered species, you can photograph that, but you, or, or an albatross, they're, they're endangered in the north now. But, you, you know, the story about, you know, what's, you know what, what's happening and how do you tell that filmically and, and, and stills-wise is very hard. So we spent a lot of time trying to find a moment where we can really talk about it. And when we heard that they were going to, um, that President Kenyatta decided... Uh, um, with some strong people around him, Winnie Carew, and decided to you know, burn all of the stockpile of these tusks over, um, I think it was, uh, yeah, it, it was 8,000 elephant tusks and with a value of um, you know, about $150 million uh, at that time. And they created these 11 pyres that they were going to burn. And we thought, well, isn't this an, an interesting way? And, and, and the depletion of elephants was happening at about a rate of about 12% per year, largely due to poaching and largely uh, for ornaments, you know, for, for um, you know, bracelets or, or, or you know, 
your sculptures or whatever. And we thought, well, this is a, a kind of a, this isn't even a necessary extinction event. This is like us pursuing a material to make, you know, to make tchotchkes with. And, uh, and, how, you know, and we can't stop that. It seems like it's very hard to prevent that from happening. So this was a signal to the world that, and to poachers and to those who want to be in the trade that at least Kenya is not going to stand for it any longer and we're going to burn it so that these beautiful animals and their tusks don't get desecrated the second time by, by being turned into you know, jewelry or, or sculptures. And, and then we thought, okay, well, so we spent a whole week there, the whole building of the piles, and every day we were out there with the workers, and it rained most of the time, uh, and it was kind of miserable conditions. And, and, it was a, and it was, for me, one of the most emotionally you know, impactful moments of the whole shoot in that when you start thinking about all of that you know, destruction of this beautiful element, uh, you know, animal and, 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 and the scale of that destruction, um, I think one of the stats we heard was, because when a poacher goes in and sees a herd, they're going to go for the biggest tusk, which is the, the big male bull elephant that usually is the male of the herd. Uh, and they'll shoot him and cut off his tusks. And, um, and then, you know, they're called super tuskers. And, and you're also depleting, you know, the stock because you're killing, the, you know, the most vital animals within, you know, within those herds. And, and so you kind of, so that, and so Kenyatta's pile, which we also turned into an augmented reality experience, was um, about like 100 super tuskers of those big, long uh, uh, tusks. And they think, there's, they think there's maybe 25 or 30 of them left now in all of Africa. So, you know. Let's take a look at what happened to those elephant tusks. He did the inventory, three months, to look at every piece of ivory measure the weight, try and pair them every day. The smell of death. One of the tasks was written, Amboseli Elephant. I've had the privilege of working in Amboseli National Park for a long time. And I thought, this task represents an elephant I probably knew. This task will never hit the market. It will never make a trinket. It will never become a mantelpiece. I was not able to stop this elephant from dying, but I'm certainly able to stop it from being desecrated further. Let's tell the people who that was. That's Winnie Carew, yes. who leads a group called Stop Ivory. What's, what's she about? And she's friends with Richard Leakey as well. And they both, they were the ones that did the first burn maybe 15 years ago. And she's a staunch advocate uh, for the you know, prevention and stopping of, of this elephant poaching. And powerful woman. Uh, and it was her driving force that actually made this burn happen. And uh, and in a good story, the CITES, you know, were there as well, and they're, they're the Commission on, on Endangered Species and stopping them from crossing borders. And, and they've managed to, you know, pretty much stop the trading of ivory, and, and, and they have it certainly written with, with China being one of the largest destinations. 
and, uh, and Vietnam as well as a big destination. The United States was a big, and so uh, the many are signing on to say no. Like if you have uh, an ivory brooch or anything like that, do not wear it. You, you will have it confiscated at the border and maybe even fined. So they want to just stop any ivory from crossing borders, whether it's you know, you know, ivory from 50 years ago or 100 years ago. They just want to stop it altogether. And it's interesting. I, I, I learned that, Toronto, uh, that Canada has not banned it yet, and it's, I think, largely due to the fact that the Inuit are still wanting to trade in the ivory from walrus and from the narwhal whale, which, and, uh, and it's a challenge to, to kind of allow them to still work in their trade with those materials. And so I, it, it's a very, we're, we're in a kind of an awkward position right now as well because we haven't banned it here in, in Canada. Is that a mistake, or is that just a reflection of the cultural peculiarities that make Canada Canada? Well, I think um, it's challenging when we have a First Nations uh, that, you know, we try to impose something that may be, you know, that is part of their culture and has been for all time, for, you know, for all their time here. So, you know, it's hard for us to impose on them uh, the fact that they can't, you know, uh, work on these and turn them into sculptures uh, because they might even find a, a walrus that just died and take the tusks and turn it into something that they can turn into money. Uh, so we have particular, you know, conditions here that, that make it challenging. I, th I think we could go further to say, well, we just, fine. We might say that's okay for them to, to, to have their craft and, 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 and make their sculptures with theirs, but we don't allow any elephant ivory. And I think that, that you know, we might be able to hive that off and still fight to, for the prevention and join the rest of the world to, to prevent any ivory coming in, like elephant ivory. Near the end of the film, the narrator, who was the Swedish actor, Alicia Vikander, uh, begins to use uh, the term a good Anthropocene. And after some of what we've seen, that seems almost oxymoronic. But uh, what is a good Anthropocene and how could, how could we have one? Well, I mean, if everybody starts to understand the scale of the problem and we all start to pull in the same direction and we start to use the, the economic tools and technology, and it's largely technology. So I, I believe technology, and, and most would believe that technology has gotten us into this problem. And I would say the steam engine then turning into the internal combustion engine is the single largest source of that problem. That, that, that technological innovation plus the, the discovery of abundant and cheap fuel called oil, uh, allowed, bringing those two things together gave us the mechanical advantage of vast farming. So at one point, half of our population was engaged in the fields and farming, and the other half was in cities and doing all the other things. Uh, and today, it's like less than 2% uh, of our populations are involved in farming and 98% of us. And why? Because those big combines and tractors and machines have a, have, are doing the work of, of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of workers. So, so, and that's the you know, internal combustion engine, of course, transportation to get it out there, and then ships and, and jets and planes and cars and all of that have all allowed us to expand. So I think that if you look at the core of the Great Acceleration, uh, it is the, the automobile and it is the internal combustion engine that, that, that has done it. So, that so now if we can learn how to you know, get around without burning fossil fuels, if we can you know, find alternatives you know, to, to you know, burning, you know, again, coal and, and, and oil and natural gas, 
the sooner we can do that, the, the, the better off we are, of course, because we're loading all of that into the atmosphere. And that is by far one of the greatest existential threats, you know, short of all-out nuclear war that we're facing today as a planet and not just as any one country. It's like all of us. And, and so I think the, the positive Anthropocene is, you know, again, if we all begin to pull in the right direction and when individuals and corporations and, you know, and, and governments, you know, regional and city governments and regional governments and, and federal governments all, you know, start to find ways to adopt the, you know, at least, the, you know, the, try and meet the, the, the Paris Accord, you know, goal, goalposts and, and, and try to achieve those things and better them. Uh, that, that is, you know, what we can do to try and stop the worst from happening. So it, we're going for a ride. It's a question of, you know, if we, if it's, if we don't stop, you know, what we're doing, the, the ride will become, you know, I think terrifying. Uh, so, and there's a window, and, and even in the last IPCC report, that window is within 20 years where we might get to a point where, there, where we can't reverse what we've done, that, that you get these positive feedback loops taking over and like the melting of the permafrost and releasing all that methane. And then with all the ice caps and all the reflection of the, of the white, you know, disappearing, then it's just a, it's a positive feedback loop, which then we have nothing in our toolkit to, to try and uh, fix that problem. My hour with you is up and it's, uh, it, it, it ends well because you've just dumped an awful lot of homework on the, on the plate of the people who work up the hill there. Um, and, and positive things that are happening, I believe. Absolutely. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank everyone for coming tonight. And as always, I want to thank uh, our hosts at the National Arts Centre, our partners at CPAC, and our sponsors at the Canadian Bankers Association for making this possible. Thanks for coming out, everyone. We'll see you again soon. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah.